Jonah chapter 3. Have you ever come to a point in your personal life where you just wanted or needed a second chance in life? That you wish you could start it all over again? Perhaps in some way you have failed at something that you were attempting to do and you just needed a start over, a redo, or if you're a golfer, a mulligan, just taking another swing at it. I believe that in our personal lives, one of the greatest learning experiences that we can have is when we fail and try again. Rarely does something come perfectly the first time. It is often necessary to repeat something over and over and over again before perfecting something. And it's no different in our Christian life when it comes to our walking with the Lord. There are times where we are just going to need a do-over. We're going to need to start again. We're going to need a mulligan. We're going to need a second chance. When we come to Jonah chapter 3, we discover in Jonah's case and in many cases throughout the Bible that our God is a God of second chances. And as I wrote that, I thought about that for a moment, and honestly, I would have to say that not only is our God a God of second chances, but He is a God of third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, and onward. God never gives up on us. He is working in you for His good pleasure. He is The work that He has started in you is a work that He will complete in you. And we don't always get it right, do we? We fail time and time again. I'm encouraged to know that when I read the Bible, the Bible just doesn't focus on the success stories of the individuals mentioned in the Bible. One of the great realities of the Bible is that the Bible also mentions to us the failures of the great heroes of the Bible. When I think of Abraham and how well he is exalted amongst the Jewish people and others around the world today in the Islamic community. He is hailed as a hero. But the Bible tells me that he made many mistakes in the endeavors in which God had called him to. In fact, sometimes he made the same mistake over and over again. In his case, the mistake was lying about his wife and claiming that she was simply his sister. And yet God showed him the the foolishness of such endeavors, and Abraham finally came to the point where he trusted the Lord enough to take his only son up and sacrifice him unto the Lord as he was being instructed to do. I think of Moses and the great champion of the Jewish people that he is, and of course, of us as Christians. But Moses didn't get it right the first time. In fact, he screwed it up so bad that God had to give him 40 years of a, uh, of a time out before God called upon him again to fulfill what God had initially asked him to do. And so forth. I think of Peter in the New Testament. I personally love Peter because he actually makes me look good. 
Peter often, not only did he have foot and mouth disease, saying things that he often wished that he could take back, but after promising the Lord that he would never deny him and that he would die before doing so, he denied the Lord three times the very night that the Lord was arrested and brought before the Jewish leadership. Not being confronted by the temple guards or Roman legion of soldiers, but by being confronted by a little girl next to a fire simply asking, aren't you one of his disciples? And Peter then went and wept bitter, bitterly. And when the Lord rose third day, the, one of the first persons he wanted to speak to was Peter and said, go and bring Peter to me and restored Peter and gave him a second chance. Our God is a God of second chances. And if you are one who defiles your Bible, please write that in your Bible somewhere to know and to remind yourself of that. You see, when we fail, it is often at that moment of failure that Satan will like to try to take us off in the corner somewhere and remind us of our failures over and over and over again, condemning us before God causing us to believe that there isn't a hope for another opportunity. There isn't a hope of a second chance. There isn't a hope of a do-over. Causing us to believe that why would God ever save you or use you for anything uh, significant for His glory when you can't even get this right? But let us understand that is one of the great lies that Satan wants to hurl at us that there are no second chances in God. For there are several chances in God. And know this, folks. God knows exactly how many mistakes you're going to make before you get it right, doesn't he? It's not going to surprise him. You're not going to make the mistake again and then go before him and him saying, are you here again? You did what? Again? I can't believe it. Peter, do you believe this? Look at this. Jeff's here again. Yeah, guess what for? Yeah, he did it again. Can you believe it? I can't believe it. Can you believe it? I can't believe it. Ask the angels if they can believe it. God knows exactly what we're going to do before we do it. And yet he's patient with us. He's long-suffering with us. He's compassionate upon us. And because he loves us in the manner in which he does, he often just, again, as a father picks up a child who's learning to walk, brushes the child off and says, okay, try again. Go again. You know, I've never seen, and I shouldn't say that because shortly after I say something like that is when I will see it. A father or a parent teaching their child to walk in the mall, that's often where I see them. They're getting them to walk throughout Woodfield, you know, and, and you get a little concerned, you know, it's like they're teaching their kids to walk in Woodfield and then they're wondering why they, when te- they become teenagers, ask for the credit card for Woodfield, you know. But I've never seen the kid fall and the mom and dad just start screaming at him like, you know, two CrossFit coaches. Get up! You're worthless! You're weak! Look at those toddlers over there. They're making you look bad. The kid <laughs> rolls on his back and rolls on his stomach and rolls on his back again. I can do it! I can do it! No, the father comes up behind the child and gently lifts the child, brings the child back up, brushes the child off, and the child starts again. 
And I love when children learn, try to learn to walk. Do you ever notice that they always try to run before they walk? I don't know if it's just simply because they're excited that they have mobility, or is it the fact that it's just an issue of momentum, that they're leaning forward and they just can't stop the momentum that's pushing them from behind? And then, of course, they fall and the parents pick them up again. I think we need to be reminded as Christians that God is a God of second chances. And we're going to fail. And we're going to make mistakes. And we're going to be disobedient. And we're going to rebel against what He says and asks us to do. But because God loves us too much to leave us the way He found us, He often picks us up, puts us back on course, and gives us a second chance. Well, we came as far as verse 10 of chapter 2, and we pick it up there. And the Lord spoke to the fish, that is the fish that swallowed Jonah. We don't know what kind of fish it was. And we left with this comforting note. And the fish, it vomited Jonah up upon the dry land. And this is where we left things last week in a pile of vomit. In verse 1 of chapter 3, and let's read the chapter together. It begins by saying, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it uh, the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast, put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast or herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let that man or and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God, and that is God, capital G, Yahweh. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they had did and how they had turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. We don't know how long it has been since Jonah has been vomited up by the great fish. We also don't know where this occurred. Most believe that it occurred in Joppa where Jonah departed from the, the port of Joppa. He departed from there on that ship in verse chapter 1, I should say, making his way to Tarshish. And if he has been brought back to Joppa, he's about 550 miles away from Nineveh. And we don't know how long it was between being vomited up there on the seashore and the Lord calling out to him again and saying, Arise and go to Nineveh. I can only imagine, if in our mind's eye alone, 
you know, here's a man who's just been thrown up by a great fish on the beach. I can see the kids on the beach all going like this. As they see this man who possibly has been bleached by the gastric juices of the fish's stomach, he has no hair, he has no clothes, because all of that would have been eliminated by the acids of the stomach. And he's just laying there. Now, covered in fish vomit, which is something I can't imagine being pleasant, is it possible that that moment that he's just lying there, he hears the Lord say, okay, now arise and go to Nineveh. That's the, dial- that's the narrative that we have here. We don't know if any time has passed between point one and point two, chapter uh, two, verse 10, and chapter three, verse one. But notice, he brings Jonah back most likely to the point in which he departed from and gives him a second chance and tells him very clearly, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I will tell you. In the Hebrew, arise and go and call are all imperatives in the Hebrew language. They're verbs that were meant to be acted upon immediately. It was a command that God was giving Jonah to go immediately and to proclaim the message in which I'm going to tell you at that time. Before he made it abundantly clear what the message was, that the evil of Nineveh had come up before God and now God was going to proclaim judgment. This time he apparently doesn't tell Jonah what he is going to say until Jonah is first obedient in going to that city. In the progression of the will of God in our personal lives, we will often see God work in such a fashion within our lives where he'll give us step one and until we're obedient to step one, he will not reveal step two. He did this also in the New Testament in the book of Acts. As one he said to uh, Philip, he said, now go, I want you to go out into the desert and wait for me there. Philip's like, okay, the desert. You want me to go stand out in the middle of the desert? Yes, I want you to go and stand out in the middle of the desert. And Philip was obedient and went out to the middle of the desert. Now Philip left Samaria, which was uh, having a huge revival. And obviously he was uh, very uh, active in the participating in what was going on there. He was playing a role there in Samaria. And God is now saying, no, I want you to separate yourself. I want you to go into the middle of the desert. And yet God did not tell him why or what was going to happen or what would happen next. He just simply asked Philip to be obedient. And so Philip was. And then when Philip got there, he saw a caravan. And then the Lord says, all right, Philip, now go and attach yourself to that caravan. And so he did. And it was an Ethiopian eunuch who was coming from Jerusalem with a scroll from the book of Isaiah that needed explanation to its meaning. And therefore, Philip gave him a Bible study personally. The Ethiopian eunuch received Christ and was baptized. And then Philip was brought back to where God would have him. We often want God to email us the complete agenda, don't we? You know, Just email the whole thing to me, Lord, so I have it and I can put it on my calendar and I know what step one, step two, step three, step four, step five is. And therefore, Lord, I'll know where we're going with this. 
But often God says, no, you just go where I tell you to go. Be obedient to that first, and then I will tell you step two. Because that requires faith, my friends. If he were to spell it all out before you, that's not faith. That's walking by sight. But if you allow him to take you step by step through the process, then you are walking by faith, trusting in him, and also, more importantly and more specifically, relying on him each and every step of the way. Oh, if God just told me everything in advance, I would probably not see the necessity of praying nearly as much as I would need to, or reading his word. I have it before me. This is all I need, etc., And so now Jonah is making a 550-mile journey to Nineveh to proclaim a message that God will give him once he gets there. And so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Jewish scholars believe that it is worded this way in verse 3 because Jonah is going simply because God is telling him to do it, but personally still is reluctant to do so. I'm obeying, but I'm not sure I necessarily want to obey. It's possible that he's still resisting at this moment, and this is the reason that Jonah wrote it in the manner in which he did. I went simply because the Lord told me to go. There are times that we have to obey God even if we don't want to, folks. But obey Him and trust that in that obedience, God will begin to change your heart to desire those things that He wants for you. And often we wrestle with God through these things. But like Jesus said, He talked about a parable of two people that the Father said, now go out into the field and and work the field. And one said yes, but he never went. And one said no, but he went. And then Jesus said, which of the two did as the Father asked them? Well, the second one. He's saying no in his heart, but he's going. His feet are taking him to Nineveh. And now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days journey in breath, believing that Nineveh is a three days journey from one side of it to another. I discovered this week that Nineveh not only had one wall, but two walls. The inner wall was actually eight miles in circumference. And it was there that Nineveh proper was guarded. And the wall was 50 feet wide and 100 feet tall. But the outer ring after the first initial wall was farming and small towns and such. And that wall was 60 miles in circumference, 50 uh, feet high. Uh, and then, uh, I'm sorry, 50, 100 feet high, 50 feet wide. And so these were immense walls to the city of Nineveh. Again, the largest city in the world at that time. Now here it says something interesting in our text that none of the English translations bring up for us. And it is interesting to me. I don't know why this is. I've written an email to a a Hebrew scholar that I know because I want to get his opinion upon it. But in verse 3, read this with me. In verse 3, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Do you have a number there after great city? Or an italics? Three days journey. But 
it's missing something. In the ESV, there's a number one there. And in the number one, it says the true translation of the Hebrew is a great city to God, Yahweh. It's a great city to God, Yahweh. Not the, any God, our God, Jehovah. I don't know why the English translations don't pick up on this. I have no understanding of this. But it is indicated in the ESV, the New King James, and it's also indicated in the NASB. That the true translation should be a great city to, T-O, God. That God apparently sees a value in Nineveh that no one else can see. That it is important that Nineveh receive the message in which he is about to communicate to them. Now we know that Nineveh was a city that was absolutely wicked and evil in every regard. Reading the prophet Nahum, you will find that clearly articulated by the prophet Nahum. Jonah being sent to this city is all full aware of all that they used to do to their captives. When Nineveh, that is the Assyrians, would capture someone, they would either cut off his lips so he could not eat or drink, he, they would impale them through the body in a spike and have him ordain the entrance way to the city. They would behead their captors and then stack their skulls at the uh, size of each of the entrance ways of the great city to again develop fear within anyone to, that would think of challenging their authority. A wicked and evil city and yet a great city to God. We're going to learn in chapter 4 that God cares about these people and knows that if they do not repent, that they are going to be judged and that judgment is going to be permanent and their death is going to be final. And they are going to experience a death separated from God for all eternity, which is so horrific that God would rather see them repent of their wicked ways and they be spared of this particular judgment that was about to come upon them. And that was the judgment that he was bringing to Nineveh, the message thereof, Jonah 4. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. This is the only portion of the message of the dialogue from Jonah to the people that we have. We do not know if he said anything more and to think that he did would be simply speculation. But it appears that he simply is stating that in 40 days this city will be judged. Now 40 throughout the Bible has always been used as a number of judgment. For Noah was in the ark 40 days and 40 nights while it rained upon this earth. The children of Israel wandered through the uh, wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. I'm sorry, 40 years uh, and uh, so forth through the wilderness as that generation died off. Goliath threatened the Israeli army and the Israeli army uh, capitulated to Goliath for 40 days before David came and slew him. 
So 40 days is always associated, or 40, I should say, is always associated with judgment. Now, God had realized their evil. Verse 1, chapter 1 of Jonah. Their evil was known throughout the known world. And God is now prepared to judge them. And yet he says, in 40 days I shall judge you. What is the purpose of the 40 days? Why doesn't he just level the judgment on them immediately? Why doesn't he just overthrow them immediately? And that word overthrown is a word that was first used in Genesis 19.25 concerning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, that God overthrew them to the point of utter destruction. Why did God give them the 40 days? It was an act of grace. It was an act of mercy. It was an act of giving them the opportunity to repent of their sin. It was giving them a chance to be spared from the judgment that was about to come upon them. Because our God is a merciful God. Our God is a gracious God and he desires that people repent rather than perish. He says, I get no delight in those who perish, he says. Throughout the Old Testament, he begs with the children of Israel over and over and over again, why won't you just repent and come back to me and I will be your God and you shall be my people. As a father crying out to a wayward son or daughter, one who has turned their back on the family and have gone their own way and the parent is pleading for their return, God is pleading with them to come back and to return through repentance. The 40 days... God was under no obligation to do so other than the fact that his own desire was for people to repent rather than to perish. This is the long suffering that we see God dealing with today. It's that he's suffering long in hopes that all will come to repentance. He's asked us to pray for everyone from the president all the way down to the very individual, homeless individual on the street because he desires that all may come to salvation. He desired even they to repent. And exactly that is what happened and occurred in verse 5. And the people of Nineveh, what did they do? Believed God. And they called for a fast and put on sackcloth and from the greatest of them to the least of them. Their belief manifested itself in action. Let me say that again. Their belief manifested itself in action. It wasn't that they simply just cried out in remorse and had no desire to change. By them putting on sackcloth, sitting in ashes, this was a common form of an outward display of inward repentance. This was them showing and demonstrating to the people around them that they were contrite before, before God, that they had been rebuked before their God, that their, a penalty was now upon their head before God, and now they're seeking God and asking for forgiveness. In the United States of America, we want to believe that it is possible to believe something but not act upon that belief. I question that. I challenge that. 
How can you say that you actually believe something if you do not act upon it? For someone who believes something will always act upon what they truly believe. Now, it's possible that they can say, well, I believe this. But if they act in contrary to that, then you know that they believe in contrary to that. Now, I'm not talking about a person who says, I believe this and struggles fulfilling that belief. I'm talking about someone who says they believe something, but have no regard of living out that belief within their life. Someone can say to me, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ, but if their life indicates every, everything but that, if they're living in direct opposition to everything that Christ has said, if they've adopted a worldview that is absolutely anti-biblical, then how can they ever state that they believe in Jesus Christ? I don't believe they can. Or they believe in a Christ in which they have constructed that allows them to pick and choose what they can then apply into their own personal life. But then I would say to that, that Christ can't save you. That Christ cannot save you. When it comes to religion in the United States of America, we believe that it's a buffet mentality. And that we can go before the buffet and we can gather, take up a plate and put on everything that we like on that plate. And then therefore, this is our God in whom we worship. And therefore, you cannot challenge it. You cannot uh, disagree with it because this is my God. Okay, I'm not going to challenge it or disagree with it. I just said it can't do anything for you. It's, it's incapable of doing anything to save you. I've never gone to a buffet and someone go up to the buffet and take the artichokes and get back to their table and say, God, I hate artichokes. They always pick what they want to pick, what they like to pick, not what they need to pick. But here in the United States of America, we're perfectly comfortable creating our own God and then following that God and thinking that that God can save us. That God can't save us. That God doesn't exist. It's a figment of your imagination. These individuals heard this one message, 40 days or you will be overthrown, and they acted upon what they heard and they believed it. And as a result, verse 6 the word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, sat in ashes, which is unheard of for a king to do, especially a king of that time. Uh, we believe it's King Anathelpian at this time who was the conqueror of the known world to, bring it, to be brought into this kind of a humility and subjection is not something that would occur naturally. And yet he shows and demonstrates his repentance. And he issued a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his noble. So those around him agreed. Let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily, wailing, pleading, begging, that's what that word means, to God. And let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. 
Not only did they believe God to move them to repentance, but then now they are allowing that repentance to have that perfect work in them in ceasing the, the actions that are objectable to God. You know, if they didn't want to deal with their wickedness and they didn't want to deal with their violence, then you, couldn't, you really couldn't say that they've repented. They're just remorseful. But here they deal with both. Let us cease our wickedness. Let us cease our violence in our hands. And they repent openly before God, knowing this in verse 9. Look at it with me. Who knows? Question mark. Who knows? Question mark. May God turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. They have no promise of God doing that. Jonah simply stated, 40 days and you shall be overthrown. The king is now hoping that if they repent and they manifest this repentance from him all the way down to the animals of their field, in every aspect, in every result, that God will relent. Maybe, possibly. They have no guarantee of that. They have not been promised that. And yet, they turn to God for mercy. It is interesting to me that in the wake of this no promise clause of being judged, that they would appeal to God for mercy. Now, we don't know if Jonah said anything else, so if thinking about that or trying to map that out would simply be conjecture and speculation, and we don't have time for that today. But they were under the weight of judgment. I'm going to ask you a personal question here this morning. You don't have to raise your hand or answer out loud, but I want you to think about it. Do you believe that hell is a reality? Do you believe, as a follower of Jesus Christ, if hell is a reality? Knowing and concluding from the biblical teaching its nature, its purpose, and its reason for being, do you believe hell is a reality? And do you believe that any who do not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will occupy hell for all eternity? A place of torment, punishment, horrific uh, terror in darkness apart from God for all eternity. Do you believe that hell is a reality? The reason I ask that is because today, I, it appears to me that many Christians who say they believe in hell do not act as if they believe in hell. Now, I'm not talking about them acting on their belief of hell for they themselves, but acting on their belief of hell concerning those who do not know Jesus Christ. We know that as a believer in Jesus Christ, that Christ paid that price for us on the cross. And that we have been translated from death to life, from darkness to light, and that we will enjoy eternal life with God for all eternity in heaven. But do we believe that those who do not respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ will be condemned to hell for all eternity? The reason I ask that is because it has been asked by others in times past 
such as D.L. Moody, C.H. Spurgeon, and so forth, that if the Christian community truly believed in hell, we would have no difficulty moving them in their evangelical or their evangelistic endeavors. Do you believe that loved ones that you know and love and care for and are dear to you, they do not know Jesus Christ, and therefore you know that if something were to happen to them today, they would spend an eternity in hell apart from Christ. Now, when I talk to non-believers, I'm always asked this question, and I camp out on it quite a lot, because I believe it's a reality. I believe that those who do not know Jesus Christ are destined for that hell. But I also believe that Jesus Christ has done everything he possibly can to keep them from that. And if they want to get there, then they have to climb over the church. They have to climb over the gospel and ultimately climb over Christ. And if you're determined enough, you can get there. But that being said, I do operate with that reality. And often I'm told by these individuals, well, now you're just scaring me and you shouldn't try to scare someone into a decision. Really? Really? Listen, uh, I I know you're driving that way, but the bridge is out a quarter mile from there and you might want to slow down because you're going about 100 miles an hour. Well, you're you're scaring me. And I don't want to slow down because you simply scare me. All right. Listen, don't put your hand in that fire. You're going to burn it and you're going to possibly lose your use of it if you burn it too badly. Don't do it. You're scaring me. Don't do that. That's a scare tactic. Don't do that. Okay. How's it feel now? Hey, I don't care if I do have to scare some out of hell. You know why? Because Jesus talked more about hell than anybody else in the New Testament. Knowing that his sacrifice was the motive or the method in which to keep people from going there. We need to revisit this in our lives and therefore ask ourselves, are we acting as if we truly believe that hell exists and that hell is the end result of a life apart from Jesus Christ? And if that's the case, please know there's nothing you can do to save those people. It's, that's not on you. But what you can do for them is pray for them, witness to them through your words and through your actions, But let there be a degree of urgency knowing that the Bible clearly says that today is the day of salvation, right? That tomorrow is promised to no one, right? Also trust that the Lord loves them more than you do. And he sent his son for them. The reason I say that is, do you notice here that a whole city repented because of fear of judgment? And if we aren't going to communicate the judgment that one is going to experience apart from Jesus Christ because we don't want to scare them into into a decision, then we're not telling them the whole truth, are we? Billy Graham did what Billy Graham did because he believed in heaven and he believed in hell. And he wanted to see all enter into the kingdom of heaven. How about you? How are you doing with sharing your faith with those who do not know Christ?
Are you taking the opportunities that God has presented you with? Are you walking through those open doors? Or are you becoming like many other Christians today who are avoiding these conversations? I don't want to stir the pot. I don't want to make anybody angry. I don't want to, uh, you know, uh, jeopardize this relationship. Really? Now, I don't think you have to do those things unnecessarily, but if the Lord prompts you to do something, I think you need to do something. I think you need to say something. Pray. Share a verse with them. Because again, their life hangs in the balance. God gave them 40 days to repent. If God stated 40 days, how many days do you think he meant? 40. And they repented. And as a result, they turned from their sin. And they hoped that God would meet them mercifully. And in verse 10, notice with me. We go from earth to heaven. And when God saw what they did, he cast down fire and brimstone and burned them all because he hated them all. Is that what your Bible says? That's good. You need a new Bible. And when God saw what they did, how they had turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. That's the heart of God. Because he's a God of second chances. Think of the wickedness in which was displayed through the people of the Assyrians. And think of the graciousness of God because, you know, again, God sees everything. This has been hailed as the greatest national revival ever recorded in history. That all of Nineveh turned and repented towards the Lord. This gives me hope for the United States of America. We want to believe that we are a good, noble, godly country. But do you believe that's what God sees? It's time that we repent. It's time that we turn back to God. And if we as believers aren't going to live as God has called us to live, then why can we ask anyone else who doesn't believe in God to repent? Oh, and guys, please let us understand if you don't know this already, it's not going to happen through an election. Do we know that? It's not going to happen through an individual president. It's going to happen through Jesus Christ. And if Nineveh can do it, so can the the United States of America repent and turn to God because the wickedness is so great in this country. I can't even watch the news without getting nauseous anymore, can you? How life is so cheaply valued today that individuals going into a synagogue would even worry and be concerned about, you know, being shot and killed, and they were. Or individuals just simply going out for a period of recreation and then being shot and killed. It's unbelievable. How can we promise that today, tomorrow, next week is there for you when we don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow? But these people turned to God and God met them 
He had no obligation to do so, but he met them and gave them an apreve, spared them from the judgment in which he was going to bring about him. Very interesting passage. I want to encourage you to read this in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, Solomon's dedication of the temple. After Solomon created the temple there in Jerusalem, he gives this beautiful dedication of it. And a portion of that dedication reads as such, and I'd like to read it to you. Likewise, when the foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays towards this house, the temple that Solomon had built there, hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all that which the foreigner calls you to do in order, listen to this, that all the people of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel and that they may know that this house that I have built is called upon your name. Solomon desired the temple to be an evangelistic outreach to the entire world, not just to Israel. You and I are now the temple. Do you not understand that? It's the Spirit of God that resides within us, and we now should be just as concerned about the fallen world as Solomon was concerning the temple in which he constructed unto God. Listen to what Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 18, 7 through 8. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. Listen to what he says about these nations. This is God. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. God is a God of mercy and he desires people to turn to him in repentance. And once they do so, he will turn to them in forgiveness and spare them from the judgment that he has proclaimed upon them. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That everything that was, we were destined to reap from the wrath that we had collected, Jesus Christ reaped for us that we may be spared from it. You and I are that temple now. We're that living epistle that God is writing that the world may read us, see him and want and desire him as their savior also. Our Christianity is not something to be kept in a cupboard or under a lampshade. It's meant to be shown and boldly displayed through our lives that others may come to faith in Jesus Christ through us. Because who knows? Who knows the individual that you will affect for the gospel of Jesus Christ that will turn from their wickedness and be spared that judgment of hell for all eternity through the person of Jesus Christ. I just want to close with a few things. When Jonah was running away from God, God could not speak to him through his word in his state of rebellion, but used a storm that crashed upon the ship used the rebuke of the sailors upon that ship, used the calling out of the captain of that ship and then was thrown into the sea. But here, after repenting, God once again can commune with Jonah through his word. 
I believe that many of us, when we start reading the Word of God and don't believe we're getting anything out of it, it's because we're rebelling against God, resisting God's will, and running from God in the opposite direction. And instead of God speaking to us through His Word, He often has to bring storms about to get our attention, to bring us back to reality. And number two... When Jonah was running away from God, he was useless for God. But after Jonah repented, he became useful for God. An individual running from the will of God, an individual running from their God in rebellion will never be useful to God. And number three, it wasn't Jonah who captured the attention of the mariners on the ship and allowed them to call out to God. It was the storm in which God brought about that turned the mariners' hearts towards him, not Jonah. But here Jonah simply speaks five words in the Hebrew. And now this whole city is now repenting. Is it possible that we are not seeing fruit through our lives because we are running from the will of God? We are rebelling against God and what God would have for us. And therefore we are not seeing fruit through our lives as we live out our lives for God. Next week, we're going to find that Jonah is still an individual under the work of God. He hasn't fully arrived. And the repentance of the city of Nineveh has only brought into contrast the fact that Israel is unwilling to repent of their sin before God. And so there is still work left to do in the heart of Jonah, and we'll pick that up next week in chapter 4. But let us not leave this morning without remembering this, that our God is a God of second chances. Third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh. I would come to eight, but then it's a new beginning, and it starts all over again. One, two, it just doesn't end. 